They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Then on to Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have, been, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper you eat? For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. For I receive from the Lord, which I also pass to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if you are more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we have been disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you, shall, you should eat together. Anyone who is un- hungry should eat at home, should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further instructions. This is God's word. Well, it's great to be with you this morning. We've been, if you've been with us for the past few months, in a series in the book of Acts, looking at the church, what it means to be the church, the practices and the habits that sustain the church. And today, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper, or communion, or sometimes called the Eucharist. Now, in Acts 2.42, the first passage that you heard read, we're told that the church celebrates communion. And throughout the book of Acts, you see the church gathering, breaking bread, and celebrating the Lord's Supper. But you don't have in Acts a lot of teaching about the Lord's Supper. We're told that they practiced it, but not so much about what it meant. In the book of 1 Corinthians, we have the longest single block of teaching in the Bible on the practice of the Lord's Supper. And so that's why in this series that we've been talking about the church, I'm actually saying for a week, we're leaving Acts, we're going to 1 Corinthians, and we're gonna spend our time together today looking at the Apostle Paul's teaching on the practice of the Lord's Supper, what the Lord's Supper is and what it means in your life. And here's how I want us to think about the Lord's Supper today. For thousands of years, as Christians and churches have talked about communion or talked about the Lord's Supper, the word that they've used to summarize what communion is, is sign. The Lord's Supper is a sign. 
Taking communion is meant to be a sign. Now, when you're on the underground, if you're not sure where you're going, what do you do? You look at a sign. The sign is not your destination, but it points you to where you need to go. A sign is always pointing to a greater reality beyond itself. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we're going to do today after the sermon, as we hold the bread and the cup in our hand, the Lord's Supper is a sign. It's pointing us somewhere. And that's what I want us to think about today. What is the Lord's Supper a sign of? Four things. The Lord's Supper is a sign that points us backward, inward, outward, and forward. And that's what we have to remember when we come to the table. The Lord's Supper is a sign pointing us backward, inward, outward, and forward. So let's take a look. First, what do we mean when we say the Lord's Supper is a sign that points us backward? That is to say, as we sit here in this room, the Lord's Supper points us backward to the death of Jesus on the cross. It causes our hearts to remember and to look back and to see what Jesus did as he died. Read with me, if you would, verses 24 and 25 of the passage. Paul, quoting Jesus on the night before his death, says this, when Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, if you've been a part of a church for any length of time, chances are good you've heard those words before. And especially if you've been a part of a church for a long time, you've heard those words maybe hundreds of times. And that's dangerous. Because the more you hear them, the more you might forget their force. That when Jesus, on the night before his death, said these things for the first time, it was radical. It was almost akin to a kind of spiritual revolution. Because you see, this meal that Jesus was sharing literally hours before his death on the cross, this was no ordinary meal. This was the Passover. This was the meal that the people of God celebrated, the way in which God saved his people from bondage and from fear and ultimately from death. And year after year, that story recounted in the book of Exodus, year after year, God's people would gather and they would celebrate the Passover and they would remember the salvation that God brought. He saved us from death. He delivered us from our enemy. He freed us from our bondage. And they'd celebrate. And now on this night, Jesus says, all of that, what you've been celebrating for thousands of years, it's all just been a sign pointing to me. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the one who really brings freedom from bondage, the ultimate bondage. I'm the one who brings forgiveness from sin. I'm the one who can deliver you from the greatest enemy, death itself. Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment to which the sign points. I am the bread and I am the cup. And we see that specifically, look with me if you would in verse 25, Jesus says this cup is the new covenant. That's the radical part. That's the part that you have to see here today. What's the new covenant? Well, to understand the new covenant, we've got to compare it with the old covenant. The old covenant was the way that God related to his people prior to Jesus' coming. The old covenant was basically this. God has given his word, his law, 
And if you obey, if you keep the law, if you keep the rules, you get the blessing. But if you disobey, you're cast out. So if you obey, you're welcome and accepted. If you disobey, if you don't keep God's law, you're on the outside. And what we see throughout the Bible is that the old covenant was crushing because no one could keep the law perfectly. No one had perfectly pure motives and intentions. No one's words were always as true as they could be. Everyone fell short of the law, the glory of God. And Jesus says, I know, and that's why I've come, to establish a new covenant. The old covenant says, if you obey, you get the blessing. And the new covenant says, you could never obey. But Jesus did. And he would go to the cross to die in your place. And if you're covered in Jesus, if you're saved by his death, if you are covered by his shed blood, you actually get the blessing that he deserved, the blessing that he earned. That's the new covenant. You say, okay, that sounds great, but that's a lot of preacher language, covenant and blessing. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called The Inner Ring. And it's a fascinating essay. I reread it this week. What he says in the essay is basically this. One of the most dominant desires in the human heart is to be inside what he calls the inner ring. You want to be on the inside of that club, that clique, that social circle, that thing at work. You want to feel like you're accepted, like you belong, like you matter. You want to be in. And Lewis says that's the most dominant desire, one of the most dominant desires that people have. And what happens is we always realize every time we get inside, you get that promotion, you enter that friend group, you connect with those people, you realize, oh, there's still yet an inner ring. And it never ends. But what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is the new covenant? You are brought into the family of God. You are ultimately accepted. You are ultimately seen. You are ultimately loved. It's the ring that shatters all rings. It is the reality to which all desires point. In other words, the new covenant is God saying to you because of what Jesus has done, you are in, you are accepted, you are seen, you are safe, you are loved. That's the new covenant. And so the Lord's Supper, as we hold the bread and the cup in our hand, the first thing the supper does is it points us backward to see the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, to see the new covenant that he established. It points us backward. But second, not just backward, the Lord's Supper points us inward. And it shows us our own need for daily grace. Our need for daily grace. It's amazing to me that the main way Jesus asks his church to remember him is by eating. It's like he knew we'd love to eat. So he says, whenever you eat this meal, I want you to remember me. And it's something so simple. Everyone can do it. And Jesus says, when you take the bread, when you take the cup, it's going to remind you of your need for grace. How? Well, remember, Jesus here, as he takes bread, bread in the first century was a staple of every meal. To speak of breaking bread was simply a way of saying, we're going to eat food together. And when Jesus says, I want you to think of me, to remember me, every time you take this bread, here's what he's saying. Your physical body will get sick and die if you don't eat for too long. If you go for any prolonged period of not eating and not drinking, you'll get sick and eventually die. Why? Your body needs food in order to be healthy and to exist. And Jesus is saying, in the same way that your body needs bread, your soul needs me. Otherwise, it'll wither and shrivel and die. 
I am the bread of life, Jesus says. I'm the bread for your life. And so when Christians come to the table and they eat the bread and they drink the cup, what's really happening is they're feasting, they're partaking of Jesus. They're saying, my soul needs him the way my body needs food. And without him, every day I wither and die. We partake, we feast on Jesus Christ. You say, well, that sounds abstract. How do I feast on Jesus? The answer is in the text. This is so important. Look with me down in verses 24 and 25. Jesus says, when you take the bread, you do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 25, you drink the cup in remembrance of me. Years ago, I heard my pastor in my previous church, Tim Keller, preach a sermon on communion. And that sermon had a really big impact on me. And one of the reasons it did is because when he got to verses 24 and 25 of this passage, he said that word remember is so key. Jesus says, I want you to hold the bread and the cup and I want you to eat and drink and to remember me. And you know, many of us, when we hear the word remember, what do we think of? We think of not forgetting. To remember is to recall. And so when you eat the bread and drink the cup, you think about Jesus. And that's far too weak an understanding of what the word remember means. To remember something is literally to remember, to reattach. The opposite of remember is dismember. What's dismembering? It's a limb being separated from a body. To remember is to take something that was broken off, was disconnected, and to reattach it to reconnect it. And you hear what Jesus is saying? When you hold the bread and cup, what you need to do is attach the significance of my death to your life. That's what it means to remember Jesus. It doesn't mean just to think about him. It means to so feel the force of his death that it connects to the very center of your soul and changes everything from the inside out. That's what it means to remember. Give you an example. Many of you here today live with a kind of paralyzing bondage for the approval of other people. You live and are always wondering, what do other people think of me? Do they accept me? Do they value me? We live with a kind of bondage in a reputation of other people. Now, you come to church and you would say, yeah, I know Jesus loves me. I know Jesus died for me. But it's the love and the acceptance and the approval of others that really matters to you, where you get your real sense of identity and significance. So you say, yes, I know Jesus loves me, but that truth is just in your head. It hasn't sunk down to your heart. It's the approval of others that's in the foreground. The love of Jesus is in the background. And you know what's happening in that moment? You haven't remembered the love of Jesus. You haven't attached the significance of what he's done to your life and to your heart. And so communion becomes a moment where we actually get to say, this is how much he loves me. This is how accepted I am. This is how much grace there is for all my shame and my sin. And as you hold the bread and cup in your hand, you reattach, you reconnect the significance of what Jesus has done to your life and to whatever is weighing on your spirit. That's what it means to remember. It's much more than just thinking. It's experiencing afresh the love of Jesus for you. And you know, we all forget way too much. That's why we don't just take communion once and done for the rest of our Christian life. 
but we come back to the table over and over and over again because we're a forgetting people. And so we need to remember, we need to be reminded of our need for daily grace. So we look backward, we look inward. And then third, and maybe most importantly in terms of the length of this passage, the Lord's table points us outward to the idea that the church is a family. The church is a family. You know, sharing a meal in the first century, much more than today, though it's true today, Sharing a meal was a sign of intimacy, a sign of closeness. When you reached into the same bread basket and broke bread together, you're saying we're one, we're a family. And Jesus, as he gives his people this meal, is saying the same sacrificial love that I have for you, that sacrificial love is now to be shared with each other. You're to be a family marked by self-giving, by how you sacrifice for each other by how united you are. You're supposed to live out your identity as a family. That's what means to come to the table. So look with me at verse 17. The apostle Paul is really upset at the church of Corinth. He's really angry with them. He says in verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Paul's saying, in effect, your church services aren't working. You're not doing a good job. I have nothing positive to say about you. Why? Well, because he goes on in the passage, it's a little lengthy, but let me just summarize it for you. What Paul's basically saying is this, at the church in Corinth, there in the first century, the way that church celebrated the Lord's Supper is they would begin with a kind of potluck meal. So everyone in the church was invited to bring some food, they'd eat together, and then at the end of that meal, they'd celebrate the Lord's Supper. And you say, that's great, and it is great, that's beautiful. But what happened in Corinth, the problem that Paul's addressing is that this potluck meal turned into, instead of being a beautiful expression of our family connection, it turned into a table of division. And what Paul says, you can see it, let me just read to you down from verse 20. Paul says, so then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you spise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What Paul's saying, it's it's heartbreaking. There was supposed to be a potluck meal, but the people who had the most resources, the people who had the most flexible schedules, generally those with more income and more flexible jobs, would gather earlier and eat first and most So that then the people who came later, without as many resources, who were more marginalized already in their society, would come and the table would basically be empty. You know, oh, there's some salad left. And what Paul's saying is, not only are you not showing unity, but you're actually humiliating people who are already marginalized in the society. And Paul's furious Because he's saying this table is meant to be a place where the unity of the church is lived out. And instead, there's division. There's division because of economic background. There's division because of class and status. And the same things that separate people out there, Paul says, are now separating people in the church. And Paul says, I have nothing positive to say about you. The same self-giving love of Jesus that we celebrate at the table is completely reversed in the selfishness of how the church of Corinth practiced communion. Paul says that's got to change. 
One scholar who teaches theology in northern Nigeria, Dekulam Detitri, says that the contrast between the behavior of the church in Corinth with the action of Jesus couldn't be more pronounced. Jesus says, this is my body given for you. And the church of Corinth was saying, in effect, that's your food, give it to me. It's this complete reversal of values. And Paul says, this is not how it should be. The table is meant to be the place of family unity. So what's his remedy? Well, down in verse 33, he says, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should eat together. (laughs) He's saying, be patient, wait for each other, and be a family. Now you say, well, what's the application? You know, we don't do a potluck meal and then celebrate the Lord's Supper, although sometimes I think that'd be real fun. What's the application then of this passage to a church like ours? And it's simple, but it's profound. There are many differences in our church. I mean, just look around. We have different ages, different races and ethnic backgrounds. We have different economic backgrounds. As you get to know people in our church, you'll find that we have different political ideologies. We have different church backgrounds. We have different ways about thinking about many important issues in the world. And that's good. Differences are beautiful. Differences are part of our humanity and they're meant to be celebrated. But if differences ever become sources of division, then we've missed the meaning of the table. If something that's secondary to our identity becomes more fundamental than our unity in Jesus, then we're being more shaped by those things than we are the love and the death of Jesus Christ. And so for all of us, as we come to the table today, it's a great time to examine ourselves, as Paul says, and ask, is our unity in Jesus visible? Or have differences led to division? That's something for us to examine ourselves as the table points us outward to our church family. Let me say one more thing to prepare us, because again, we are coming to the Lord's Supper today. Let me just say one more thing. The table points us backward, inward, outward, And finally, forward. The table points us forward to God's coming kingdom. Look with me, if you would, at verse 26. Paul says, whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul's saying, and for all of you today, when you hold the bread and the cup in your hand, Paul's saying, you do this in anticipation of the day when Jesus comes back and when he sets up his kingdom, when his kingdom of beauty and justice where evil is banished forever, when that kingdom is established, Jesus, Paul saying, you eat today in anticipation of that day. Now, I don't know what comes into your mind, you know, when you think of heaven. I remember growing up when I was first coming to church and people would talk about heaven. I don't know where this came from, but what I thought of in my mind was angels playing harps and I was wearing a lot of white and there were clouds everywhere and it was like an eternal church service. And I was like, well, I guess that's okay, but it doesn't sound that exciting. But as I read the Bible and as I thought about it and I looked at what scripture says, I realized that's not at all the picture that the Bible gives us of heaven. The picture that the Bible gives us is that of a city. And it's a city that's healed. A city that's free from danger and evil and abuse and oppression. A city where peoples get along and tears are wiped away and death is defeated. 
and a city where there's a feast, a literal banquet, in which there's a place for you at the table and the king of kings is there with us. That's the kingdom. That's heaven. That's what we're looking forward to. Angels playing harps and wearing a lot of white doesn't do much for me. But a place where death is defeated and tears are wiped away, that's a future I can get excited about. That's the future that Isaiah describes. Let me read to you a few verses from the book of Isaiah. This is the coming kingdom of God. This is the kingdom that Paul says, when you eat this meal, you're saying this kingdom is coming. Isaiah says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meat and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he, God, will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace. In that day, we will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That's the coming kingdom. Death defeated, a feast prepared, tears wiped away, the city is healed. And Paul says, when you hold the bread and the cup, you're saying that city is coming And that's my future. To eat together today is a promise that we will eat again with Christ and his kingdom. And do you know what that means? You know, if you really believe that that city is coming, that that's your future, do you know what happens in your heart? Hope and courage. There's a lot in this world that's hopeless. I mean, you just have to read the news from the past two weeks. This world is broken. And we need a city like this. And if I believe that it's coming, if I know that because of what Jesus did, that's my future, my heart is filled with hope, even in the most hopeless moments. And not just hope, but courage. If I know that my future is this safe, then I have courage. There's a lot in the world that can be totally overwhelming at our jobs, in our families, even the failures of our own life. And sometimes the thing that you want to do most is tune out, turn on Netflix and say, I give up. I don't want to deal with it. But if you know that this city is coming, it fills you with courage to say, I can can give myself in service to God and service for others because look at the future that's coming. Look at the future that's mine. The table points us backward to the death of Jesus. It points us inward to show us how to attach the significance of Jesus' death to our hearts. Points us outward to our church family the unity that we have, and it points us forward to God's coming kingdom. What are we waiting for? Enough for me. Let's pray and come to the table. Our God, thank you for what we're about to do. Thank you for the bread and the cup that symbolize, that show forth, that make real to us the death and the love of Jesus. So now as we celebrate this meal together, we pray for a powerful move of your spirit that today we would remember Jesus' death, that we would attach to our lives the significance of what you've done. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen.